If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Imagine if you collected a scrap of fabric to document every important moment in your life. What might be included? An ivory scrap from a wedding dress or a christening gown? Or perhaps a bit of lycra from the shorts that you ran your first marathon in? Or maybe just a bit of Hawaiian shirt from a really great summer holiday? Well, in the 19th century, an ordinary woman named Mrs Anne Sykes did exactly that. And her remarkable album of fabrics is the subject of a new book by the fashion historian Kate Strasden. I spoke to Kate to find out more about the historical detective work that it led her to. So thank you so much for joining me today, Kate, to talk about your new book, The Dress Diary of Mrs Anne Sykes. So it's all based around one pretty incredible object. What is... The Dress Diary of Mrs Anne Sykes. Can you describe it to us? I can. It's it's a fabulous album that was actually given to me in 2016. And it is covered in pink silk. So it's very bright, looks incredible. And it's full to bursting with swatches of fabric. Pasted in the pages. Sometimes there's four pieces on a page. Sometimes there's 12. Sometimes there's only two. But it is essentially one woman's record of her life and the people that she met throughout that life in the 19th century. And rather than collect autographs or poems or the other things that women were often doing at this time in these kinds of memory albums, she did it through cloth. And so they're dress fabrics from over 100 different people that she met through her lifetime. So yeah, as you say, this contains more than 2,000 samples of fabric and you have some examples in your book. When I was flicking through it, what really struck me was how vibrant and modern some of them look. There's a vivid blue that's a bridesmaid dress, as I think it's labelled as, and there's, there's a kind of leopard print almost fabric for furniture upholstery. These are not really the things that we might associate with with the dour Victorian image, are they? No, they're not. We're really used to seeing photographs of Victorian families or couples in those studio settings where they obviously look quite unsmiling and not particularly accessible, partly because people couldn't smile in photographs then because the exposure time was too long. And so you would have had to hold this kind of rictus grin. So you do get this sense of black and white Victorians who don't smile. And what you realise as soon as you see the fabrics is just how incredibly colourful they were. They lived really colourful, bright lives. There's printed cottons, there's silks, and they are just patterned in a way that we probably would find quite surprising, I think. though They are very modern. Some of them, there are a few that I, when I first looked through the book, and they look like something that you would see in Ikea or Habitat or something as a really contemporary sort of print. So they are, they are really surprising in their variety. So how did you end up with this amazing album in your possession? I make Connaughton lace, which is a very fine 
hand bobbin lace and I started making it in my 20s and I joined a group in Devon. I joined it when my kids were young and once a month on a Saturday could just turn up at this group, drink tea and coffee and make lace and all of the women there were much older than me and and I loved it, it was brilliant and one of the ladies there had approached me knowing what I did for a job. She was clearing out her apartment and asked if I would like to come and have a look at the things and if I'd be interested in any of them. And so I spent a very happy afternoon, uh, one January, looking at all the things that she had amassed over her long career. And it included dress patterns, she had garments from the Victorian Edwardian period. And this was the very final thing that she brought out of a trunk and it was wrapped in brown paper. And as soon as I unwrapped it, I knew it was an absolute treasure. And she just wanted somebody to have it who might actually be able to find out more about it. She wanted it to be somewhere where it would be valued. And it was an incredibly special gift, as it turns out. Absolutely. As a fashion historian, I imagine that this was an absolute gold mine for you. But for everybody else who's thinking... What's the historical significance of this? Why is something like this so important? What avenues can it take us down in terms of research that go beyond fashion, actually, in a lot of ways? It's very rare volume. That's the that's the first thing. There's only one other that's sort of similar to it that I found in the UK. That's at the v Museum. And it was an earlier volume by a lady called Barbara Johnson. So this it's incredibly rare. Not that I think that is because there weren't very many of them. I think there might well have been more. There might be more in people's attics, but they weren't valued very much. I think because they were associated with kind of hobbyist things that women did, they've never been given their their kind of true value, I guess. And what it shows you is it's a window, not just into what people were wearing, but into technology and into industry and into... uh, all sorts of different making practices, but really into lives. And I think as a dress historian, that's always been the thing that kind of grabs me the most when it comes to dress, which is that dress is that most intimate part of our lives in the way that we express ourselves and our sort of self-presentation. It doesn't have to be about fashion even, it's just what we choose to wear. And so it does open that door into into social history in the closest way in the closest kind of physical way attached to to people's lives and their and their bodies really Mm, it's amazing how much you've been able to uncover about the woman who who made this album Anne Sykes from these samples of fabric can you tell us more about that process and the detective work that you had to put into finding out about her life and her network of friends it came to me completely anonymously so It was given to me by a lady. It had been given to her back in the 1960s. She worked in London and somebody that was working with her as a a volunteer in a theatre wardrobe had been to Camden Market one Sunday and spotted this on just a flea market stall. I think he paid a few pence for it and he gave it to her because he thought she would find it interesting because of the textiles. But it didn't come with any provenance. So she had no idea where it came from or who might have owned it. So when she gave it to me, it was it was completely anonymous and full of names. So all of the names written in the third person. So each swatch has a, a caption above it and it might say something like 
Fanny Taylor's dress, 1843, or uh, Mrs. Gregg, 1832, something like that. Uh, but no identifiers at all. And then there was just a single swatch in the whole of the 2000 uh, pieces that she included. One single swatch where she said, Anne Sykes' dress, 1840, the first dress I wore in Singapore. And it was the only time that she actually identified herself as the as the keeper of this, as the maker of this. And once I had that name, it just kind of unraveled the whole story, really. Uh, I was able then to identify a wedding dress that said Anne Sykes, Adam Sykes, 1838. And of course, once you have that kind of date, once you have a sort of specific event, you can then attach it to the lives that sit behind it. And that's what I did. Uh, Having found Anne and Adam, it then kind of just snowballed into discovering all of the network of people that surrounded their lives. It did become this great kind of detective story. Mm. And I guess that the real value of this is that it gives us an insight into the life of somebody whose life would not necessarily be that well documented otherwise, somebody pretty ordinary. What kind of insights can something like this offer about the lives of of middle-class women in the Victorian era. She's quite sparse in the notes that she gives. So there's often just a name and a date, but sometimes she will include things like, uh, there's a particular few samples where she includes morning clothes that were worn by her friend Hannah Kubra. And they were clothes that she wore when her mother passed away in the early 1840s. So you get that sense of things like, the, the morning traditions, that etiquette around how you expressed grief at that time. But wedding dresses as well. Uh, she records her life. So she did move to Singapore and lived there for seven years with Adam, who was a merchant. And so you get this kind of run of textiles that came from some of the small shops that she was able to purchase cloth from out in Singapore. It's shopping, it's, it's you mentioned furniture prints, so it's, it's the interiors, it's the actual sort of fabric that filled their lives. And it just really shone a light on so many different aspects of life. As you say, lives that were often not recorded, these are the women. When I was reading about early Singapore and the, the people that established that European sort of merchant community, it's always the men that they're talking about. Uh, it's the men that built the theatres and the churches and the the women are there. They just never made it into the pages of those history books. And this is one of the few routes into finding out about these fairly ordinary women. And what did you uncover about what it was like for British women in imperial outposts like Singapore at this time? First, the thing that struck me was that she left... At the beginning of July, they sailed from Liverpool on board a, a ship called the Friends, and it took them four months to get there. So in, immediately, it's that sense of distance that we kind of know about. We know that that travel and access to communication was much more limited, and yet when you see it, when you get that sense of uh, taking four months to get somewhere, and then your letters. I did find one of the ladies in the book called Maria Balestia. She was an American. She was actually the wife of the American consul to Singapore. And her letters have survived. And so I was able to read about her 
experiences of Singapore, but it took so long. So sometimes she would have a kind of spat with her sister that took place via letter. But it takes three, four months before she can reply. So her sister would say, oh, I don't know why you don't come home. It's so, you're obviously not very happy and the climate doesn't agree with you and just come home. And then, you know, four months later, she'd get a letter back saying, I can't come home. It's just, it's too expensive. I think isolation is one thing that you you are so far away from friends and family. And it was an emerging outpost. So there are reports of tiger attacks and the the infrastructure for this young woman that had travelled from Lancashire to uh, all the way to Singapore. That, that sense of isolation, I think, was the thing that struck me the most. And that's where the swatches, I think, were really important because... They were easy for people to send to her from home. I think they often would slip little swatches of fabric into their letters and, and it was that connection with the people that that she was missing back at, back at home. Yeah, and the album does take you down some more unexpected avenues of investigation. How did you end up at Pirates? Well, what I love about this, so it's there's such a mix... You've got the kind of morning gowns or dressing gowns that are just ordinary, everyday part of life. And then on one page, I came across this. It's a very sort of ordinary looking piece of red flannel. It's a bit sort of moth eaten around the edges. Doesn't look like anything very exciting until you read the caption, which said uh, part of the pirate flag captured by the Admiral in Borneo, 1845. And it's such a specific piece of information. So I immediately started digging and and discovered that uh, somebody called Admiral Sir Thomas Cochrane was on anti-piracy duties on board HMS Agincourt at this time in 1845. And at some point, Anne met him and asked if he would contribute, presumably, a, a piece of fabric to her book. And he gave her this piece of pirate flag. As I started to then look into the realities of piracy in that region at that time. A red pirate flag is pretty horrifying because it means no call to given, no mercy shown. So if you are on board any kind of vessel and see they were very fast rowing boats that would uh, charge down the straits and attack vessels. And if you see that red flag, that's a, a terrifying thing. So, But at the same time, it's stuck onto a page And underneath, there's a a piece of blue velvet that says Adam's birthday slippers, 1845. So you have this kind of crazy juxtaposition of of international piracy on the same page as Adam's velvet birthday slippers. It's an amazing way to document a life and your experiences, isn't it? Um, You know, there's so much less information here than you would get from a diary. But somehow it feels really tangible and really evocative in a way that maybe a diary isn't. Exactly. It's that tactility, I think, of cloth. We can all think of clothes and textiles in our lives that would immediately bring back a memory of something really significant. And I think that's what she had. She she remembered the people that... Because some people feature in the in the book throughout her life and they appear frequently in its pages. And others are obviously people that she met and knew for a shorter time. Although she doesn't write very much, and, and really I had to kind of fill in the gaps quite often. I like to think that her and Adam, for example, had a, had a happy marriage, but I don't really know. Um, so a lot of it is just filling in gaps of their social life and their the path of their life without the words, but it's amazing what the textiles do actually convey. 
Absolutely. Um, so as well as documenting Anne's life, I guess it's also a document of changing fashions over the 19th century. What do the swatches reveal if you look at them kind of as a whole about changes in fabric, perhaps changes in design? I think it sort of slightly breaks that myth that it's only people living in big cities that are interested in clothes. You've got women here who were either living in Lancashire, and obviously Lancashire has a very strong textile tradition at that point. She grew up the daughter of a cotton spinner and with family associations in the calico printworks that were surrounding that part of Lancashire. So textiles sort of lived large in her life anyway. But what you see throughout the book is just this evolution. She's right at the cutting edge of what's happening. She's got printed cottons that are really complex in their structure. And that is all about the roller printing industry that was emerging throughout this kind of period. You then get things like the bright purples and surprisingly vibrant colours that relate to the aniline dye industry that had sprung up in the 1850s. William Perkins, who was the uh, chemist who accidentally discovered aniline dyes, which was a way of fixing these very bright colours to cloth that had previously been very difficult. So you have these kinds of examples. So they weren't women who were kind of lagging behind in their interest in dress. She's right at the cutting edge of all of these technologies that were changing the way that people looked and that and you can see that evolve from the 1830s when the when the volume starts right through to the 1870s she even refers at one point to her polonaise which was a very specific garment briefly fashionable in the 1870s you get that sense of how fashion is changing and how they are keeping up with what is on trend at that time. Obviously, fashion is always used to convey meaning, whether that's, you know, status, class, uh, or it's about gender. So what are some of the key trends that we would see in, in this area? I think what I've I've always found the 19th century endlessly fascinating because it's so fast. I mean, when I first started out as a volunteer in a historic dress collection when I was a teenager and started to learn about these basic changes, the pace of change in the 19th century is incredible. So you do move obviously at the beginning of the century you have that kind of regency uh the Jane Austen style um empire line and then very quickly the 1820s are distinguished by a particular kind of silhouette the 1830s when Anne was married and and growing up uh you have the big sort of leg of mutton sleeves and and triangular skirts the 1840s changes again you can pretty much date dresses to within a couple of years of uh, when you see them in surviving collections, either by their pattern or by their shape. Um, she lived through that period that saw the great crinolines, which were the, the sort of widest. I think when people think of Victorian clothes, they think of um, the big bell-shaped skirts of, of the crinoline in the 1860s. And then right through to that bustle period where where it slims down, but you have all of the kind of fullness at the back of the skirt. So she she lives through all of these changes uh, that are very distinctive throughout the throughout those decades. So what can you tell us about the production of fabrics themselves in the 19th century and how that changed? It's a period where there isn't a great deal of legislation when it comes to the way that things like dyes could be uh manufactured and then 
used. So when you see the aniline dyes, for example, the, the bright purple dyes, they... I mean, revolutionised the way that people dressed, but it was a period and would have been right at the heart of this period where toxicity in a lot of these fabrics was commonplace. So Shields Green, for example, which is the arsenical-based dye that created this very, very bright green, that did poison often the makers. So they um, the Shields Green was used for things like making the artificial flowers that decorated dresses. And the flower girls who made those, those uh, trimmings for the gowns were handling this arsenical, uh, arsenical material and often were poisoned by the dye stuffs that they were using. Things like uh, mercury, which was used in the hatting industry, the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland, the reason that he is mad is because he's worked in the hatting industry and, and mercury poisoning was something that affected workers in that industry. So until later in the 19th century and early in the 20th, where more legislation around these kind of materials started to be implemented, you do have all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful recipes being used for things that did that did affect either workers or wearers. There were people that would record wearing striped stockings and then develop terrible striped rashes on their legs. And that's because as they perspired, the the toxins that were in the coloured parts of the stripes would actually cause awful skin irritations. So you do read all sorts of really awful stories about how that kind of toxic industry was just a part of so many aspects of, of dress and textiles. And what happened to Anne later in life? Did she keep up her diary in the same way that she had in her youth? What's interesting is you see perhaps that she's either losing interest or getting a bit older. So towards the end of the volume, the swatches get much bigger. They're not so carefully cut out. She only perhaps just puts a year. So sometimes you don't even know who it belongs to. And the writing gets bigger. So you can see it change. Anne moved back to Lancashire in the 18, by 1849 and lived the rest of her life in back in Lancashire in various places. She lived in an amazing house called Coulthurst Hall. And at this point, Adam is described on the census as a gentleman. So he made his money in his merchant role in Singapore and obviously did very well. And so they live a kind of life of, of genteel, uh, middle-class respectability, um, which takes them f- to various country houses in Lancashire, around Clitheroe. And then later in their life, they moved to the coast. And then the last years of their life, they they rented a house called The Knoll, which is uh, in a village called Bispam. That's about two miles north of Blackpool. Adam died in 1888. And then Anne died shortly afterwards in 1890. And I did actually find them. So I had this amazing sort of odyssey last year where I went in search of them. So last January... I went up to Lancashire and and sort of followed in her footsteps, uh, visited some of the houses that she'd lived in, very cheekily knocked on the door of the people that lived at Coulthurst Hall and they were lovely, showed me around, and finally went to Bispam Churchyard where Anne and Adam are buried. And they have this incredibly ornate Celtic cross headstone, which I was able to find. And that felt lovely, actually, just 
the first time that I'd sort of properly encountered Anne. I'd sort of, it felt like a very fitting way to conclude the the whole story. Well, that question of encounter is really interesting because Anne is is very present in some ways in your book. You know, she's the person who made this whole thing, brought all these things together. But in another way, she's quite elusive. How did you feel about your subject at the end of the book? You're right. She did Because she doesn't give anything of herself, really, because apart from that one time where she identified herself, all of the other swatches that belong to her, and there are many hundreds, but she only ever says Anne Sykes, Anne Sykes dress, Anne Sykes coat. She doesn't ever give anything more of herself. So she's kind of curiously absent in a way or silent. Uh, And yet I sort of feel that I know the shape of her life. So yeah, it's quite an unusual, it feels quite unusual in that respect because um, I have to just kind of imagine her with all of these lovely swatches that filled her life, but I don't, I can't actually picture her very easily. And finally, what is your favourite fabric sample of the 2000 in Anne Sykes book? I think obviously that one, that one printed cotton that looks very simple. It's a very sort of pale trailing floral cotton where she identified herself. That obviously was the most important in terms of unlocking the, unlocking the book. But as I discovered more about her life, that was the moment I really could picture her because she'd chosen to wear this dress, which was this printed floral cotton to arrive on the boat so presumably she changed into that dress as they as they arrived in the harbour at Singapore to this the complete unknown just nothing that she could ever have imagined and I think that must have taken a lot of courage in a way so there she is in this very um, light and floaty cotton dress probably feeling very nervous about what what was ahead of her. That's the point that I could just imagine her looking out perhaps at the harbour and thinking, oh, okay, what's going to happen now? That was Kate Strasden speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. Her book is The Dress Diary of Mrs Anne Sykes, Secrets from a Victorian Wardrobe, and was released in the UK last week. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.